Hey, I'm Holly from Massachusetts. I'm James from Salt Lake City. I'm Jason R. Wallace from America's Georgia in these United States. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jordan Morris. In his new novel, True Believers, Kurt Anderson writes about a woman with a James Bond obsession. So it makes sense that Kurt had some childhood spy fantasies of his own. I did things like uh, at, when I was about 12, uh, Radio Shack started selling this thing called the Big Ear, which is this giant dish that you could point at people hundreds of yards away, theoretically, and wear headphones and listen to what they were saying. I, I, I saved up and bought one of those. I, I, did it work? It did, you know, well enough. I mean, to, that I, that I liter- literally could listen to my neighbors in their yard. Uh, did you ever hear anything salacious? No, no, but, you know, hearing it was enough. It's bullseye. This week, I keep the chair warm for Jesse Thorne and decide to do a couple of interviews while I'm at it. Kurt Anderson and I talk about the art of creative procrastination, why a new generation is happily digging into its parents' record collections, and his new book, True Believers. Comedian Chris Fairbanks shares a story about a friendly neighborhood mugging, and actress Ari Grainer talks about good old-fashioned phone sex in the new movie, For a Good Time Call. All that and more on Bullseye. Let's go. Each week on Bullseye, we like to get some pop culture recommendations from some people we think have impeccable taste. This week, we'll be talking to two folks from one of our favorite culture sites, the AV Club. We've got its editor, Keith Phipps, and the music editor, Mara Eakin. Welcome to Bullseye, guys. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Keith, your recommendation this week is the reissue of Quadrophenia. Let's hear a clip. Where you been? Fell asleep on the train. I wound up in bloody knees, Dad. Running about on their motorbikes all hours of the night, I'm not surprised. It's not normal. Oh, yeah? What's normal then? Uh, so, Keith, what is it about this reissue that you find recommendation-worthy? Fundamentally, it's just a really good movie, and uh, better than I remembered it when I rewatched it uh, yesterday. Uh, it's coming out from Criterion, so, of course, it looks great, and it's got all kinds of extra features uh, to dig in, into. Now, what director Frank Rodham does is, instead of trying to adapt, doing a straight adaptation like, like a rock opera, it kind of weaves the Who music in at, at key times, uh, and what's otherwise a really detailed kind of gut-level portrayal of working-class British life in the early 60s that captures a lot of details of the clash between the mod subculture for whom the the Who was heroes and and the rockers. Uh, now it's your turn. You are recommending the new single from Mumford & Sons, I Will Wait. Uh, before we talk about it, let's hear a little bit of that song. Well, I home like a stone And I fell heavy into your arms These days of darkness Wish we'd known We'll blow away with this new sun. But I 
So, uh, Mumford & Sons, uh, this is a kind of a banjo-based song. Uh, am I right? Yeah, Mumford & Sons doesn't really have any songs that they use drums with. Like, they sometimes the lead singer Marcus Mumford will play a kick drum while he's playing a guitar. And he has a couple songs that he just plays drums on, but it, they don't have, like, a drummer. So really all the percussion on the song is from your, your stand-up bass and a banjo. And the song, the way the song is mixed... Is really it leans heavily on the vocals and the banjo, which makes it really kind of percussive just through the string instruments, which I think is one of the reasons I like it. Talk about um, this band is kind of more than just you know a a kitschy revival because they do have a reputation for being kind of you know more than just the sum of their outfits. I think that there's this idea right now uh, that's a really popular buzzword in culture in general. This idea of quote unquote authenticity. Like, oh, I'm going to make my own beer, and then I'm going to go to see people that really can play their instruments and do all this stuff. And so I think that they've grown really fast, but I think also people look at them and say, oh, you know, they grew too fast. They didn't pay their dues. They didn't do this. So, I don't know. I think that this band is actually very talented, and, I mean, banjo is a hard instrument to play. Like, I don't know if people try to play it or play guitar. It's a hard instrument to play. It's terrific. And, and, I mean, you definitely don't hear a lot of banjo on mainstream radio it is kind of it is kind of amazing how bluegrassy this song is but it is one that i do think we are going to hear all over the place <laughs> yeah i think you're going to hear more banjo <laughs> i think that's this is a movement that we're going to get like i mean people at the av club talk about dawes that's not a banjo band but i think you're going to hear a lot more roots rock it's not going away anytime soon. All right. Well, uh, guys, it's been uh, delightful talking with you. Uh, that was Keith Phipps, the editor of the AV Club, and Mara Eakin, who is the music editor. Keith recommended Quadrophenia, the Criterion Edition, out now on DVD and Blu-ray. Mara recommended the new single from Mumford & Sons, I Will Wait. Thanks for being on Bullseye, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That was Keith Phipps and Mara Eakin from the AV Club. You can find all their stuff at theavclub.com, including their podcast, Reasonable Discussions. Bullseye, I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. My guest Kurt Anderson is a jack-of-all-trades. He's currently the host of the public radio show Studio 360. He's a cultural critic who's written for The New Yorker, and he co-founded Spy Magazine. In his new novel, True Believers, lawyer Karen Hollander sets out to write her memoirs. She's recently been nominated as a Supreme Court justice, but rather than writing about her career, she jots down confessions about her days as a James Bond-loving left-wing radical. True Believers is Kurt's third novel. Kurt, welcome to Bullseye. Great to be back, Jordan. Kurt, you kind of made a name for yourself uh, writing for and being the editor of Spy Magazine, which was kind of short humor pieces. I wanted to ask, when you 
first kind of embarked on novel writing because you had worked in, you know, that short form for so long, did starting the novel seem like the most daunting thing in the world? It seemed – I mean, I'd also been a, a nonfiction writer, a journalist, as well as a sort of distorted, deformed journalist in the guise of editorship of Spy Magazine. So it was thrilling actually to be able to just at first to – I can make everything up um, because at Spy, we were careful. To, I mean, we really did try to be journalistic as well as satirical and funny. And then, of course, you realize that making it up and A and B writing, you know, along this long thing that is a novel is is terrifyingly difficult in its own way. Do you do it differently now that you're several novels in? Do you have a do you have a process that's different than that first one? Well, to the degree I know I can do it. Uh, that, that that you know in the in the first one it's yeah it's like climbing a mountain for the first time when you've never done it and and halfway up it would be too embarrassing to climb down and you don't know how to get up to the top and so there is a there's a level of terror uh, before you've ever done it and now I've done it a couple of times with this one and now three times so it is different and I think my process has become less quasi journalistic with the, with the first one I did just tons of research because. Uh, that's what one does as a, as a nonfiction writer. And I think I've uh, become freer to simply uh, tap what's in my, my brain rather than needing the, the sort of, uh, you know, a notebook full of notes. Well, yeah, that's interesting because I, I maybe would have guessed, having read True Believers, that this was a pretty research-intensive book. But is, is that uh, not the case? Well, it's research-intensive. I mean, and, and certainly I, I, I didn't think of it as an historical novel. But, of course, half of it is set in the 1960s, and the 1960s are 45 and 50 years ago. So, yeah, I, I, I was a little kid alive then, but I didn't know exactly how the march on the Pentagon went down in 1967. So for sure, I did research. But when I was first writing long fiction novels, I would do tons and tons of research before I ever wrote a word. And, and so I've learned to trust my the, that gland in one's brain that writes fiction out of the ether. I guess for me personally, some of it's even kind of like a fear of starting yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense. No, totally. It's it is it is another version of sharpening the pencils for the tenth time. Uh, and of course, we don't sharpen pencils anymore. But it, it uh, yeah, absolutely because you never know what you're going to stumble across in your research that might be the 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 thing that stumbles you on to invent a character, invent a backstory, invent a turn of events. So, I mean. Uh, not so much material, but things that will lead you to other material uh, is uh, is precious, and and writers are desperate for that. So anything that might provoke something is one is one in, one reason I think fiction writers do that. And uh, you know, it's it's in a way easier to say, oh, let me do some research rather than let me uh, uh, concoct this story and these characters out of out of whole cloth and just and figure them out on my own. So it's it's a, you know, th- there's real value in it and it can be a kind of a crutch. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of easier to it's kind of easy in a way to trick yourself into thinking that that's the that's the tough stuff, but but it seems like kind of just figuring out the characters by writing them, it seems like that's kind of the actual work. Absolutely. And and with this book, with True Believers, I I, I you know, part of the premise as you know is is these kids uh, these these 
12, 13-year-olds who become obsessed with Ian Fleming's James Bond novels in the early 60s. I hadn't read one when I had this idea and, and, and started writing. So uh, if uh, I, I, then I, I read some uh, once I started writing. But, but I, it was so, – so if anything, I, I'm, my, my pendulum <laughs> of, of over-research uh, swung a little bit in the, in the opposite direction this time. The first chapter of this book is is kind of amazing. It 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 ends with the main character flat out telling the reader, "I am a reliable narrator." Um, I, I guess my reaction to that sentence was, uh, "I bet you're not." <laughs> yes, you're not alone in that in that feeling, and and that was part of my intention. I realized. Uh, in, I, who knows what intention I had literally as I was writing that chapter and, and sentence. But but since any first-person narrator, which she is, is inherently unreliable, uh, uh, and, and she's conscious of that, uh, I was sort of playing around with that idea. Although she certainly, absolutely, 100 percent believes she is being as reliable and truthful as she possibly can after having lived this big lie all of her life. But yeah, she's, she's, she's a little over insistent uh, uh, that she's that she's reliable and should be trusted, and then as we find out later, uh, she's she's as reliable as she can be because she, there's a lot of stuff she doesn't know. She doesn't, and she knows there's a lot of stuff she doesn't know about how things went down and what happened and who was who and who was allied with what. But then there are a lot, as Donald Rumsfeld said, a lot of unknown unknowns as well. So so even with all the good intentions in the world, which which she has. Uh, she she can't be, you know. She can't give you the whole truth because nobody knows the whole truth. You play a lot with the idea of like how how people represent themselves. I mean, to each other, but also you know because your characters are public figures, how people represent themselves to the media. Uh, there's a really funny scene where um, one of her childhood friends uh, is giving an interview, and he describes their kind of James Bond pretend games that they played as kids as like performance art happenings because, uh, you know, it's his M.O. to be seen as this artiste. I I imagine as uh, someone who does interviews on studio studio 360 that's something you run up against a lot well and i've and and as an as a reader of media and as 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 somebody who interviews people who has been interviewed yes you get you you told i I totally under am, am aware of the fact that everybody all of us uh are engaged in perpetual revisionism of our own lives uh some people more um, extravagantly than others, uh, but but absolutely. I mean, and, and and again, I didn't begin with this novel with the idea of I'm going to explore the gradations of truth and but <laughs> at all. But but that became one of the things that uh, that was going on. Very good, fancy guy voice, by the way. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris. My guest is Kurt Anderson. He hosts the arts and culture show Studio 360 for Public Radio. And he's written a new novel about the confessions of a counterculture warrior turned lawyer. It's called True Believers. You know, it's interesting. There, there's a moment I love from uh, Studio 360. I think it happened a few months ago. You were interviewing, or maybe even a few years ago at this point, you were interviewing um, David Cronenberg, um, a, a director known primarily for kind of over-the-top horror movies and thrillers and things like that. And you were interviewing him about his new movie, um, Gosh, I think it was uh, it was the Freud movie. Correct, the Freud Jung movie. Yes, um, 
And you said something to the extent of this isn't a typical David Cronenberg movie. And he says, well, I don't know that there is a typical David Cronenberg movie. And your your reply was pretty amazing. I think you just said, oh, come on. <laughs> and And I thought that was one of the most amazing moments in an interview that I had heard because, you know, this this man is known for a very strong aesthetic, and it's an important one, and he's, you know, amazing for having come up with it. But for whatever reason, he didn't want to cop to being a guy who worked in a certain mode. Yeah, well, I gave the standard question, he gave the standard answer, and then I wasn't willing to let the standard answer run go by without – Without slightly good-naturedly busting him on it. Yeah, yeah. No, it definitely wasn't – it didn't seem like a takedown. But, yeah. I mean, I think that's what we were all thinking. I mean, as a guy who's loved all of his movies, I thought to myself, oh, come on. And I was just really glad that you said it. Well, that's that's that's, I guess, one of the parts of this job description is uh, say the thing, ask the thing that, you know, a, a large fraction of your listeners might want to ask or say. Um, now, uh, I want to back up to the to the James Bond novels a little bit. If you are a little bit off from these characters age-wise, what was your James Bond growing up? Did you have a, a fantasy world that you liked to occupy? I did have a spy, Cold War spy a fantasy world that I occupied, not to the extent that these kids do. Uh, but I watched – I loved The Man from UNCLE. I loved – on television, I loved I Spy. I loved the Patrick McGowan uh, show, Secret Agent, the British show, which then uh, – and, and then uh, The Prisoner. I loved The Avengers. So, uh, yeah, my, it was really more of a television-obsessed uh, 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 spy world that I created. But also it, it was the – you know, there was the beginning of all these – uh, you know, branded James Bondish uh, weapons, toy toy guns, and and secret attaches and stuff that you could buy. So it was a really toy and television uh, version of a of a spy life that I existed and uh, that I inhabited. And I did things like uh, at, when I was about twelve, uh, Radio Shack started selling this thing called the Big Ear, which is this giant orange uh, dish with which that you could point at people hundreds of yards away, theoretically, and wear headphones and listen to what they were saying. I, I, I saved up and bought one of those. I, did, I, did it work? It did. You know, well enough. I mean, to, that I that I literally could listen to my neighbors in their yard. Did uh, you ever hear anything salacious? No, no. But, you know, hearing it was enough. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, the act was salacious. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I kept a little – I had a little card file, three-by-five card file and a little metal box where I would just create sort of dossiers on people I knew. So – who? To what end? Who God knows. But uh, so yeah, I I, I definitely uh, dabbled in this sort of espionage, Cold War fantasy world enough as a little kid that I I could sort of elaborate it and extrapolate it for these characters. Um, there's a character in the book I, I want to talk about specifically. Um, Waverly. She's the uh, she's the main character's granddaughter. Right. Um, and I, I want to make sure to get this right because it's a very funny detail. Um, Waverly describes herself as a culture jamming freegan. Yes. Am I am I getting that right? That's 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 right. Um, now I know you're uh, you're a dad, Kurt. Does this is this character at all based on your own kids? In no way. No. No. Not <laughs> at all. Actually. I mean, I, my, but my kids both uh, read this read the manuscript before it was published and and gave me some. 
suggestions about ways that a 17-year-old girl would or wouldn't act or things she would or wouldn't say. But no, they're they're much more straight arrow uh, kids than that who are not involved in culture jamming or uh, freeganism. <laughs> no, no dumpster diving in the Anderson house. No, no, not really. And 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 uh although, you know, they're they're, you know, liberal-minded progressive kids, but they they did not uh uh force their mother to chaperone them at uh and take them to occupy Wall Street protests as Waverly did with her mother. <laughs> the now when you saw the news reports of Occupy Wall Street and kind of, you know, the interviews you know, with the occupiers, did they did it did it seem to you like you had gotten it right? Right enough, it did actually. I mean, I, I obviously didn't use the word. I, I flecked in the word occupy after you know on a, on a, sure. my final revisions last winter. But yeah, close enough, and close en- and, and given that it's set actually a, a year or two in the future from now, uh, I, that actually gave me a little bit of. Of 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 buffer of safety zone to imagine how it might have evolved, uh, you know, a year or two hence. But yeah, I I did feel like I, I the the basic critique uh, without any specific demands um, was indeed what what Occupy uh, seemed and maybe seems to be about. You know, it's really interesting. I, I um one of the other interviews i've i've done uh while well, Jesse's been on sabbatical was the band uh red cross and they are kind of a um you know a a kind of a punk grunge band who started in the 60s or in the 70s and um uh, their lead singer talked about being a father and his daughter is about 17 and you know when i asked him if um you know, if his daughter thought that their music was weird or square, he said that she didn't because this new generation of kids specifically um, is a generation that takes very much from older generations and kind of, you know, right. they create more of a kind of cultural quilt than, you know, previous generations have. I mean, that's probably largely because of the internet and all that stuff is so easy to get. But is that something that you find too? Oh, absolutely. And and almost to a fault, I think that happens. But <laughs> it's I, I think starting with people my character's age, people a little older than, than I am, with the baby boomer generation, this generation that made its bones as the generation gap generation. We're different than our parents. We think different. We listen to different music. We, we speak differently. We dress differently, all that. Then, start, starting right then, they, they sort of changed the rules to say, and we'll, we'll keep being youthy forever. So no, no future generations will have to rebel against us. And, and that, it, it's, it's, an, it's, it's the great irony in a way of, of, of that generation is that having, having been the rebellious uh, line in the sand, we're different people, uh, then have, have done their damnedest to make sure that – all subsequent generations listen to the same music they listen to. <laughs> right. Uh, do you find that when you relate to your to, to your own daughters, do they get into your LP collection and do they watch classic movies with you? Uh, it's it's interesting. Yes and no. I mean, they 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 uh, are not big lovers, for instance, of black and white film, which may be some maybe just them or maybe some permanent uh, uh, sort of. Uh, difficulty that younger people have that didn't grow up with watching black and white stuff on TV. Uh, but music, absolutely, as you say, they 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 listen to old stuff. They listen to brand new stuff. They they have 
kept me apprised of of new bands, uh, even as they adore certain old music. So um, all of which is good. I mean, it wasn't. You know, as a kid, I never, for instance, would have said, "Hey, Dad, can I play your Benny Goodman records?" <laughs> right. But, but, but yeah, you like know, that would at, almost be something that the hippest kid at high school now would do. Exactly, and and it wasn't until I was twenty five or thirty that I discovered Benny Goodman and said, "Hey, this is pretty good." So, so uh, no, I- exactly. So they they are uh, they are as as kind of not only eclectic uh, in their tastes, but in the good side of of what. You're talking about what we're talking about is not having so many pre-existing. Oh, this is uncool. This is cool. They'll watch or listen to anything, and if they like it, fine. You know. After a break, more with Kurt Anderson. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI Public Radio International. Hey, gang! The Max FunCon East lineup is posted right now on our website, MaxFunCon.com. Want to spend the weekend with an Olympic pentathlete? You know you do. She might even share some of her secrets of success. Like fencing really well. And how about stand-up comedy from Michael Ian Black? Yes, please. Want to take a class taught by public radio's Kurt Anderson? Uh Uh-huh. But there's one guy that you absolutely cannot miss. Talk show legend Dick Cavett. He'll be there, too. Max Funcon East is October 26th through the 28th in the Poconos. We'll have great sketch comedy from 10 West and Two Fun Men, a whole slew of classes to take you through the weekend, and tons of other stuff. The lineup is too long to list here, so go to our website, maxfuncon.com, and check it out. It'll be a truly amazing time. Registration is still open at maxfuncon.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris. My guest is the cultural critic, novelist, and public radio host Kurt Anderson. His new book, True Believers, flashes between the narrator's counterculture youth in the late 1960s and her life in the political climate of 2013. Kurt, this is interesting. Your your main character is kind of uh, writing these memoirs, you know, kind of from a a place of retirement. I think she's located like in the Hollywood Hills. Correct. Um, And I thought it was interesting. You have a description of of uh, of Los Angeles, and she's talking about all the places she's lived in her life. Uh, and I think the sentence was something to the extent of uh, New York and Chicago are the meal and Los Angeles is the dessert. Something um, like that, yes. What about it, as a guy who, who lives in New York but I imagine comes here a lot for business, um, what about it has that dessert quality to you? Well, it, I, actually, I started writing this book uh, it, during the four months I spent in Los Angeles three three years ago. So uh, it, it seemed natural to to make her inhabit it as I was inhabiting it. It well, it's you know I, all of the, the 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 blue skies and 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 sweet some sunny days and all the rest of that kind of. Uh, as as Karen Hollander says, the, the just the sheer sluttiness of nature in, <laughs> in Southern California is, is so pleasant. And of course, it comes at a time in her life. Uh, she moves there in her le- in her late fifties to become dean of a law of UCLA law school, and so she's you know. Uh, uh, not exactly winding down because she's about to publish this book that will turn her life upside down, but 
it, it feels to her like a dessert because it's coming at the end of her life, her her experience of being in Southern California. But all the the just the the you know from from valet parking to seventy four degree weather every day to the scents of flowers in the air after having spent a life in 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 a childhood in Chicago and then a then an adult life in New York and Washington, it it just feels like the the sort of sweet ender to her to her uh uh otherwise uh hyper ambitious life also she's 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 a you know a tenured professor which she describes as a kind of in this day and age unimaginably sweet gig yeah it, you know it's so interesting because she does kind of seem to lead this idyllic life um but by publishing this memoir she's kind of throwing herself back into that unpleasantness um is it just something in her character that can't sit still for too long uh well she's a catholic she's no longer a catholic she left the <laughs> church at 13 but there's a certain uh if not self-flagellating aspect to her character they're uh, never willing to be entirely uh happy with herself and her lot and what she's done and and a desire to confess and and uh so that I mean, it's who she is I, I won't chalk it all up to her catholic girlhood but it is you know she she is uh she's lived a life of yeah she's succeeded and she's had good jobs and made money and has a boyfriend and nice granddaughter and all that but she's had this lie that she's lived with for her entire life uh this gnawing thing that nobody but but she knows about and and so yeah she's 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 revisiting that uh and, and, and in an effort really i think even though she never says this in so many words but to purge it to get this out of her craw once and for all so that maybe you know for her last decade or two of life she can she can live with a sort of a sort of spring in her step that she despite appearances hasn't had for 40 years it's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris. My guest, Kurt Anderson, is a public radio host and novelist. His new novel is True Believers. It's told from the perspective of a baby boomer who's revealing some pretty serious youthful indiscretions from the late 60s. Uh, Kurt, in addition to doing uh, journalism and novel writing, you do a lot of writing for uh, TV and the stage and uh, screenplays and etc. Uh, what is different about writing a novel? Well, it, it is – I mean there is, uh, at least in the novels I write, significant engineering involved of figuring out what goes where and as they say in television, laying pipe so that it pays <laughs> off here and all that. But um, for me anyway, uh, the, 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 the screenwriting is a lot more about engineering. Once you sort of uh, figure out what you're doing – uh, you, then you 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 do it you you execute it. Whereas novel writing, I mean, not to be too new agey about it, is more of a journey where you don't know necessarily what's going to happen in the you know scene after next or what that character is going to do fifty pages out. There is uh, you you really are kind of exploring the terrain as you create it and figuring out the 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 the, the intentions and 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 shades of character of your characters. As you're creating them. So, I mean, I guess it's a little bit like, you know, slow food or slow something, that, <laughs> that, that it's not quite so, okay, here's my idea for the movie. Here's this happens in the first act. This happens in the third Done. Uh, in a novel, because it is, at least in the way I do them, uh, 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 this, this, you know, deep, slower process, uh, 
uh, I think I, anyway, find myself more often surprised about uh, the, the the path that the story and the characters take, even though I, you know, I begin with an idea. I know this is pretty much going to happen at the end. And I know they're going to go through this, and that doesn't change. The, the, the various sort of zigzags and flights of fancy and, and burrowing underground that happens in order for them to get from A to B to C, um, you know, take, take, take you by surprise uh, sometimes and, and uh, in more than they do for me in, in, uh, in, in uh, screenwriting kind of things. Yeah, gosh, as a guy who came from kind of journalism and magazine writing, is it tough to give yourself over to those flights of fancy? I could see how it would, you know, when you were starting out at least, seem almost, you know, antithetical to to the writing process. Well, it, it is. It's a different – I mean, it's all writing, but it's a very different discipline. I mean, you know uh, – um, uh, balance beams and sprints are all Olympic sports too, but but they're different. And 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 it did take some uh, uh, sort of retraining of certain muscles to say no, 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 let it go. Don't 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 leap so quickly to sort of wrap it up in you know seventeen hundred words or nine hundred words. Um, and 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 see where this takes you. So yeah, it does take. It, it's a different kind of. Of of writing discipline and and of course there are still deadlines and I take deadlines seriously when you sign a contract saying you'll deliver this book on such and such a date, but you know uh, two years is very different than three months or two weeks and 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 you have to readjust your kind of writerly metabolism to to correspond to that. Uh, well, Kurt, it, it looks like we are about out of time. Uh, thanks so much for uh, being with us. Oh, always my pleasure. Thank you. I've uh, been talking to Kurt Anderson on Bullseye today. He is the host of Studio 360. That is on a public radio station near you and at Studio360.org. Uh, his new novel is True Believers. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you, Jordan. Stand-up comedian Chris Fairbanks has a trademark delivery. It's this kind of nervous, stammering speech pattern. And maybe he's got a reason to sound a little jumpy, given what just happened to him. He told the story on stage at the fourth annual Max FunCon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A week ago, I was casually mugged. Uh... I live in Mar Vista. It's kind of, I live down from a housing project where... Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Someone just got stabbed in commemoration of my neighborhood. <laughs> I live in Mar Vista near a John Singleton. Uh, grandmothers raise their daughters' babies. Ah! Oh, we lost another uh, crip. I don't know. I'll, I'll make eye contact. Uh, but it's not, no, it's mostly families. But I was walking at night... And uh, this kid came up behind me. They had little to lose. And by that, I mean face tats, teardrops, I don't know, Dodgers logo, but on the cheek. That's when you know it's like, ah, I don't give a shit. Uh, but he was kind of being nice. He goes, uh, hey, do you live in the area? And I'm like, well, hello, totally normal guy. Uh, and it's, it's dark. It's pretty dark. And we're walking down a dark street. 
I'm like, yeah, I lived right over there. And I don't know why I did that. And then he's like, yeah, I, live, uh, I used to live over there. And I'm like, oh, yeah, they're turning it to it. And then he interrupts me and goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm selling an iPod Touch for 20 bucks. I'm selling an iPad for 50 and I got a laptop for 50 And we're walking towards the dark, and I'm like, I do not want to buy electronics in the dark. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I got, uh, I got the iPad, I got a knife, and I'm like, oh, to sell? Or uh, do you mean... Do you mean a knife to stab me with? That's what I said. And then he goes like this. <laughs> duly, duly noted, shrug, shrugger. I'm like, I don't, how would I, I guess I do want to buy an iPad. He's like, well, you got to go to my place. I'm like, I don't want to wait at your place. You know what? And I knew I didn't have a bunch. So I got like uh, 20. I had like ones in my pocket. So I'm like, here you go. Here's five. He told, I fanned out the rest like a peacock of <laughs> opportunity. But I gave him like, here's five ones. I'm going to. And then he's like, give me the rest. And uh, I'm like, ah. And then I gave him the rest. And then he's like, hey, sorry. But he said sorry. So I was like, what? Sorry. Uh, well, maybe I could call you sometime when I have the rest of the money. I'll buy that iPod, uh, the iPad, whatever. I'll buy something. He's like, yeah, my name's Ruben. <laughs> and he gave me his phone number. <laughs> he gave me his phone number. I, should we? <laughs> I, have, I call, okay, I called him once and it wasn't his name. But it just said the phone number. And then I said, hey, good news. I earned that extra eight bucks. I know that iPod I have on layaway. Why don't you give me a call back? This is Chris. And he never called back. But here's his number if someone wants to call him. And do not, mother use my name. Uh, but just mention an iPod. Or a knife. No, maybe he was just a really knife salesman. <laughs> what if that was it? Are you interested in Cutco Cutlery? I'm sorry. It's the double D edge thermal resin handle. No. Wooden handles are outlawed in 38 states for restaurant use. Then he, it's bad. I don't know. That was a weird end to my set, but I think I'm... Is that it? I think I'm done. You guys are terrific. Chris Fairbanks is a stand-up comedian based in Los Angeles. He told that story at Max FunCon this past June. Max FunCon East is happening in October and includes appearances from Dick Cavett, Michael Ian Black, and Jonathan Ames. You can find more information at maxfuncon.com. After a break, actress Ari Grainer talks about good old-fashioned phone sex. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey, Bullseye listeners. Do you remember waiting all night in line for concert tickets? Have you ever made your own top ten list? Have you ever come to blows with a friend over the Beatles versus Stones debate? Then you, my friend, are a true music fan. But don't fear. There's a home for you every week. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We're the hosts of Sound Opinions, and every week we bring you what you need to know in the world of rock and roll. From interviews with people like Brian Eno and Bootsy Collins, to performances by Wild Flag and Arcade Fire. Plus, the week's music news and album reviews. So whether you're the first to tweet news of the latest Panda Bear release, or you haven't bought a new record since Frampton Comes Alive, 
we've got a place in the conversation for you. Because we're music critics, but like you, we're also fans. And admitting it is the first step. Subscribe to Sound Opinions for free on iTunes or at soundopinions.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Ari Grainer. She's made a name for herself playing outrageous characters with an air of humanity. She had her first turn on TV in The Sopranos, played a drunken best friend in Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, and Steve Buscemi's floozy girlfriend in the film Youth and Revolt. Her new movie is For a Good Time Call. The story begins simply enough. It follows two women, new roommates in Manhattan. They're not friends at first, but then Katie, played by Grainer, lets it slip that she's making ends meet by working a phone sex line. Her roommate Lauren, played by actress Lauren Miller, is appalled. But in this scene, Lauren offers an olive branch to Katie in the form of some business advice. Get a landline. You're wasting your time for a buck a minute, and this depraved company you work for makes four times as much as you for doing nothing. Get your own hotline. I've thought of that. It just sounds like a ton of work. It's not a ton of work. You just call the phone company, give you a new number, you'll set up a PayPal account, tell your repeat caller your new number, and you're done. You seem to know how to do this. Help me make this a business, and I'll pay $100 of your rent until you get another job. No. Okay, forever? I have an interview tomorrow at Laxton Press. It is the second best publishing house in the world. It is my dream job, and I'm perfect for it. <gasps> oh, really? Okay. Well, you go get your fancy pants boring job, and I'll just be here being exciting. Fine. You know, you're not better than me. You're not better than phone sex. I'm better than phone sex. Ari, welcome to Bullseye. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so you, I think what you do really, really well is you play characters who one might describe as a hot mess. <laughs> um, I think that's something that you do really well is you play characters who are very id-driven to the point of kind of being a problem. Um, is this a kind of person that you know? I think as an actor, you never try to look at your characters with any sort of judgment. Right. So, of course, I look at them like all parts of myself, all my children, not like the uh, not like the soap, but right. you know, all children bared from my body. But um, <laughs> so I see them as all being very different and all and understanding all of their sensitivities and their vulnerabilities. And of course, I would never define any of them like a hot mess. Um, but I totally understand where that where that sort of image would come from. I mean, I'm attracted to characters with big, complicated personalities that. Um, you know, in which sometimes their behavior is antithetical to how they actually feel inside. And, and Katie and for a good time call is no different. She's somebody that is so well defended and, and has this incredible bravado and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, this outrageous sort of sense of self, but really it's masking this, you know, insecurity and vulnerability she has and, and, um, complete, I think, uh, distance from from who she really is and who she wants to be. Yeah, so you have a uh I guess you are the 
executive producer of this movie? I you am. have an executive producer credit? Yes. Um, was there any movie that you guys could look for for inspiration? Um, we really love the quality of films and characters and actresses from the 80s, movies we grew up watching with Shelley Long and Bette Midler and Goldie Hawn and Lily Tomlin and Diane Keaton. And um, there was a certain quality in these actresses. They were broads. They had character. They were unconventionally beautiful. They, The stories had a sweetness to them and a sense of fun and adventure and were uh, not solely about a romantic relationship. So this is a little bit like an homage to that time. Now, uh, God, there's this there's this really funny moment that that I've been thinking about since I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's really small, and and some of the humor in this movie is just I mean it's crazy, it's over the top, it's really really raunchy. But there's this really small moment where um, Lauren is in the bathroom and something has gone right for her, and she's doing this like kind of silly dance, uh-huh. just like one of those silly dances that you only do like. In front of your friends and family. Yep. Like one of those things where you're so comfortable that it's just okay to do something dumb and silly. Yeah. And you start saying to her, stop doing that dance. That's the worst <laughs> dance I've ever seen. Uh-huh. And it is such this small moment, but it seemed so honest. Like it is, it did seem like something that you would only do around someone you're supremely comfortable in front of. Mm-hmm. So – you and Lauren were not best friends before this movie started. Mm-hmm. How yeah, do we you, didn't know each other before. How do you how do you how do you create that friendship that's so vital to the movie? Well, making this movie was an incredibly intimate experience for all of us. And I think part of it um was just really lucking out that we all just kind of hit it off right off the bat and you know, you bring up that moment in in the film and I love that you brought that up because that came out of a really fun day of shooting and we're talking about a new shower head that we got and, you know, she just did that dance and then I just said that line. You know, those were those improvised moments that did come out of us having a good time together that um, that I think there, there are many of those in the movie that we tried to sort of infuse that intimacy of real friendship, you know. Yeah, no, it's 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 funny because this is not the studio version of the film that they yeah. were trying to get made. I, I imagine that the shooting schedule for this was pretty tight we shot it in 16 days good god which is you know Um, about a million dollars 16 days you know just to to put in perspective you know a lot of studio comedies are shot in 40 45 right um god it's it it must have been kind of hard to find the time to do those little improv moments Mm -hmm. that are so important to a movie like this but i imagine just you know time is money and when you are working with 16 days it's it's cool that you guys made that important, I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, behavioral improvisation is different than script, you know, than, than uh, you know, language improvisation. You know, that's something that can sometimes take a longer amount of time. And there were there were some scenes like when we shot the phone sex callers, we really, you know, we, we were so fortunate and grateful and lucky to have um, the actors and comedians come in that we did. And, of course, we wanted them to be as free as possible. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris. My guest Ari Grainer plays Katie, a young lady who's making ends meet in New York as a phone sex operator in the new movie For a Good Time Call. Katie's got a reluctant roommate in the film who's been keeping her and the business at arm's length. That is, until she comes home from a crummy job interview. Blackstick Press isn't hiring for another three months, so until then, 
I'm yours. I want to make a third of the profits, and I'm not getting on the phone. It's strictly business. I wouldn't want you on the phone. You wouldn't have any idea what to do. Can you help me make a website? Of course I could. But you don't need a website yet. You need a phone number and a phone. For your new landline. <gasps> oh, my God. You got me a gift. Welcome. And it's pink. <sighs> okay. So I've been thinking about the concepts of my line. And the thing about it is that it's classic. It's always in style. Just like my pretty pink phone. I want to talk about um, your velour jumpsuits oh, for I thought a you minute. Would never ask. I know. That's kind of, I've just kind of been paving the way for what people are really interested really the in. Hard-hitting journalistic questions. Velour jumpsuits. Yeah. Uh, I think one. The, there was only one velour jumpsuit. Was there, what, okay. Many, I remember jumpsuits. Many jumpsuits. Okay. One that was velour. Okay. Um, thank you for clearing that You're up, welcome. by the way. Yes. I, I, I feel like a, such a journalistic sham. Anytime, yeah. Um, so um, I, I think it's interesting in some of these movies like, you know, that do have kind of a cute or precious style to them. Uh, you know, it adds to the fun of the movie, but sometimes it can seem kind of trivial. But I think in this case, your character's kind of crazy style that it does include a velour jumpsuit mm-hmm. really like – really told you a lot about the character. Like, it wasn't there just to be frivolous or cute. Right. Um, talk about some of the kind of style choices in this movie and how it uh, how it informs the characters. You know, uh, part of the thing about Katie's look in the film um, is, is two things. One is that I've been living in, in my boobies apartment. Um, my That's my grandmother for people that don't speak Jew. And uh, who has passed away. And so Jamie sort of... I was very good friends. Uh, my good friend Aaron Plotkin growing up. I was close with his boobie. Oh, so. good. So you understand. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Okay. But for the, yes. For the, you know, for the, the more the goy gen- genteel, yes. Um, so Jamie had this idea, which I thought was so brilliant, that if I w- had been living with my boobie and I was living in her apartment, that perhaps I would be wearing some of her old clothes. <laughs> and um, and I also, you know, I wear a lot of vintage and um, it just seemed like a right fit for Katie. And then also we really wanted to sort of show her transformation over the course of the film that as she sort of becomes more in touch with who she is and through her friendship with Lauren, um, she's able to sort of strip away some of the makeup, some of the more outlandish outfits and and sort of find a, a more solid sense of self, some of which end up coming from Lauren and, and vice versa with Lauren, somebody who comes from a much more conservative sort of buttoned up place and you know she ends up sort of loosening up over the course of the film and the girls end up sharing clothes which is you know what friends do and uh man i love those jumpsuits so much (laughs) i miss them every day of my life you didn't get to bring home the jumpsuit i well they were rentals look we were an independent film with no money (laughs) thank you warner brothers costume department for rentals Uh, i think i did keep the white linen one i really wish i had the jean one but maybe if if this movie becomes a massive success warner brothers can give it to us and we can put it in our own personal archive or something i mean if it's not already up at planet hollywood it should be up at the arc light or something are there still planet hollywood there are still playing in Hollywoods, yeah. Um, I'd like to talk about the. I'd like to talk about the world of phone sex for a second. Okay. I kind of before before watching this movie, I was kind of surprised that they were making a movie about it. Like phone sex seems like such a pre-internet 
relic. You know, it kind of mm-hmm. seems like your dad's Playboy that's in <laughs> his sock drawer. Right. But it is still a, a, an industry that is alive and well. What do you think is the appeal of it in this world where every sex thing is on the internet at all times? Well, I think, um, you know, first of all, you know, watching porn is relatively passive. You're not, you know, a part of it. And then you can clean the house while you're doing <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, you could do anything. You could be on the phone with your mom for while people know. Paying some um, bills. And then, you know, I, I think things that involve, you know, web chats and all of that, your face is out there and God knows who is is, you know, picture captioning, you know, picture capturing something. And I think phone sex allows a certain amount of anonymity and also a certain amount of intimacy. I mean, I think we're, we're in a world right now where intimacy is, is being thrown out the window. You know, we're kind of an over-sexualized culture, but, you know, even the world of dating, you know, it's massive news if somebody calls you rather than texts or emails, you know, and people want to have that connection, but there's more and more things to hide behind. And, and, um, as cliched as it is, Katie used to talk about in college, many people would call just to have a conversation. And I think that, um, it can allow a a certain sense of both safety and presenting yourself, how you want to, how you want to present yourself and also a way to be totally honest about what you want and need without anyone judging you or without that fear of of what somebody will think about you because nobody knows who you are. So hopefully this is, this can put it out there in a way that's fun and palatable and, and, helps to encourage that ownership, you know. Ari Grainer is the executive producer and star of the new movie, For a Good Time Call. It's in theaters this week. At the end of every show, we feature a culture pick from the host, and I'm taking full advantage of that this week. It's The Outshot. A favorite musician of mine unfortunately passed away earlier this month. Tony Sly was best known as the frontman of No Use for a Name, a Northern California punk band that came up in the same mid-90s punk explosion that brought us Green Day, Blink-182, and the like. Admittedly, I hadn't really listened to No Use since high school, but I dug out some of those old albums when I heard of Sly's passing. This conversation me. Please me and though I tried to understand, I didn't know. How can you say that? Some things stuck out to me on my re-listening spree. First of all, Tony Sly is really singing. Unlike some of the bands from that era, he's not screaming or sneering, but almost crooning. This decidedly non-punk vocal style is really fitting when you listen to his lyrics. They're more crying-in-your-beer country than they are punk. The narrators are tragic characters who screw up, realize they've screwed up, but can't really do anything about it. Compared to some of the punk tunes from my childhood, these have aged much better. Frankly, it's a little easier to relate to a song about subtle heartbreak and disappointment than it is to a song about hating the football team or how boring suburbia is. In a weird way, it's the perfect punk music for a 30-year-old. I 
had another pleasant surprise when I went through Sly's two solo albums, recorded in 2010 and 2011. These are quieter, acoustic albums that owe more to Willie Nelson and the Pogues than to Black Flag. Sometimes when old punks try and grow up, it sounds forced or unnatural, but not with Sly. In a weird way, it seems like this was kind of his jam all along. I am stupid, you are perfect. I am danger, you are safe. I've been drinking from this bottle for at least a couple days. Every time you walk in a room, angels blindly follow you. You are kind and sincere, but so few. Tony Sly left too quickly, but he left behind a ton of great music that will withstand the test of time. That's my This week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our interns, Lindsay Pavlis and Tom Pike. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. I'm Jordan Morris, and it's been a damn pleasure. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.